I was never planning to have a sponsor for the show unless it was something I really believed in. I've always believed in therapy, and I really believe in BetterHelp.com. Not only do I believe in them, but I'm a client of theirs as well. Registering was simple, and you can choose from various packages, some that start as low as $45 a week. You can utilize email, text, instant messaging, or video chat for your counseling. Some packages include unlimited contact. One of the best features is that you can connect with your therapist no matter where you are. How cool is that? If you're out of town, you can still have your regularly scheduled session or connect with your therapist from anywhere in the world. Sign up now at BetterHelp.com slash TheDepressionFiles and get 10% off your first month. That was BetterHelp.com slash TheDepressionFiles. It's professional, accessible, affordable, and convenient. Why not give it a shot? Every suicide attempt I've had, the only thing I felt was frustration because it didn't work. Welcome to The Depression Files, where you'll hear interviews of men who have struggled with depression. We talk about everything related to mental health, from depression and other mental illnesses, to medication, to suicide awareness and prevention, to our current mental health system, and of course, to the stigma that surrounds mental illnesses. I believe that sharing stories is one of the best ways to chip away at the stigma. I also believe that sharing stories helps to educate those who may know little about mental illnesses while giving hope to those who may be suffering. I'm your host, Al Levin, and I want to thank you for tuning in. Let's get started. Good evening and welcome to The Depression Files. Hey, I'm really excited tonight. I have NFL offensive lineman Joe Barksdale on the show. Joe was on the show, actually, I just I looked it up to get the exact date. Uh, February 27 of last year, I interviewed Joe. Uh, it was a challenging interview for me as an interviewer. It was the most difficult interview I had done. And uh, Joe was in a really dark place, and he still wanted to be out advocating and sharing his story to support others. So we agreed to interview him, and it was uh, a challenging, challenging interview for me. And uh, to hear Joe being in such a low place, it was the first time I decided to actually change my intro for my show and explain that he was in a pretty dark place and that you know I kind of wrestled with publishing it or not and decided to go for it. Joe just reached out to me about uh, a month ago and said, hey, Let's do it again. I'm in a better place, and I'd love to be on the show again. So, Joe, I want to welcome you, and thank you for uh, reaching out to me. Oh, thanks for having me, man. It's uh, it's good to be back. Yeah, I'm uh, really excited to talk to you. You know, we talked earlier, and it was it was a really tough interview for me, and I felt like I was trying to instill some hope into you, and mm-hmm. you, it just wasn't going to happen. And and that's real, right? I mean. Yeah. And uh, I didn't realize that you uh, were traded uh, just a few months ago. Oh, I wasn't traded. I got cut. Oh, you I got, got, you got, yeah, cut. I got cut. Okay. Picked up by uh, the Cardinals. Yeah. And so you were on a contract still with them, weren't you? Mm hmm. And then they cut you and then they end the contract. I don't even know how that works. Yeah, I would look at it like. Uh, I mean, I mean, it, it is finding another job pretty much. Yeah, but um, they had signed you yeah. for four years. They cut you early. They, do they have to pay out some of the contract, or how does that piece work? Yeah, yeah, some of that had to um, – I mean, between what I earned from the contract, I'm really only missing a year out of those four years. So right. uh, three years of the contract have been paid in full. Okay. So that's gotcha. a blessing. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And then uh, – and you went through this season with some injuries, correct? Yeah, I um I broke my knee – First, was it the thirteenth play of the first game of the season last year? Oh my goodness, that had yeah. been incredibly painful. You know, it really was. Um, I, I, someone got beat, and uh, you know, there ended up being a pile behind my legs. Somehow, the uh, there was force that kicked my right leg from under me. The right leg went up so fast that the two bones, uh, the uh, I don't know the medical, you know, jargon for this, but the top of the shin bone and the bottom of the 
thigh bone hit each other so hard that uh, there was a fracture and I was out for um, four weeks. I was supposed to be out for like six to 10, but I was out for four weeks. Wow. Four weeks. And then four weeks. By the grace of God, I was able to come back earlier. Yeah. I mean, that's because, yeah, there's nothing you can do to speed up a bone heel. You know, the good news is, though, um, you know, when bone heals, it heals. Yeah. So, and the, you know, it was funny. The doctor, the team doctor at the time told me, hey, if there's an injury to have, this is the one you want. You know, like you'll come back from this and, you know, by the end of the season or next year, you won't even remember it happened. Right. Like, and it's hard to believe that when you can't stand up, you know, because oh my God. your knee is in so much pain. The funny thing about that is I've broken my knee. And, um, you know, I remember going inside and having to get an x-ray and so forth. And, uh, you know, with just the, uh, I think it, I think it took a minute for him to find out where the issue was. But in the meantime, in between time, I remember the doctors left to look at the x-ray. I remember one of the trainers wrapped my knee up and asked me if I could stand on the sideline as an, as an emergency in case someone else went down. I'm sitting here with a broken knee and they're asking me if I could, you know, stand on this broken knee for another two hours just in case. I'm like, what am I going to do if someone does go down? I can't go back in and play, but yeah. <laughs> right. Oh my God. So, so that took you out for four weeks and then four, felt like four years, felt like four years. Yeah. I can imagine. And you were just itching to get back on the field. Yeah. I was, I was itching to get, I was itching to get back to help the team really. Yeah. Um, I would like to think of myself as a selfless person. The hardest part of those kind of injuries for me were just not being able to, you know, not being there for the team. Right. That's incredible. Um, one of the things I had heard about professional football in particular was that there's not a ton of team camaraderie. So I like to hear that you really feel a tight connection to the team. Um, I've heard that there's so much infighting, you know, like who's first oh, there's string. Still that I mean, at the end of the day, when money becomes involved, even before money, I think the fact that, you know, the NFL teams are always different, if that makes sense. Um, and I know people are like, oh, well, college teams are always different, too. But I feel like when you go to a college, you know you're going to be there for four years. You get, you know, you have a class that you come in with. Um, you know, usually most, if not all of those guys that they're graduating with you or matriculating through college with you. In the league, I mean, it's a different team every year. And teams always say it near the end of the season. Hey, this is the last, you know, this is one of the last times this team is going to be able to take the field together because things always change. And I feel like, you know, as when players, because, you, you know, you have to go to college um, to go to the NFL. So it's different than what you're used to in college. I mean, hell, my college career was four years, and I'm going into my ninth year as an NFL player. So I've been through four years twice. And, you know, you learn a lot. I mean, you it sucks when you get close to people, you know, just for cut day to happen and now they're not on the team anymore. Or, you know, you have a really good friend and now he's injured and he's done for the rest of the season. And, you know, that, those kind of things happen too. And I think that because of that, because of the business aspect of the job, players are a little more cautious and hesitant with, you know, reaching out and making those meaningful connections, myself included. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's much more like a job and you're th and oh, it's, no, it's a, a job yeah yeah it's, it's not like a job it's a job right right it's a job yeah you know, and college I, is a whole different gig college is a job too it was it really yeah. yeah i mean it's the yeah it's the uh it's a job yeah it's a job you're doing class right right uh so when push comes to shove and you find out you're getting cut do you think, uh, you know, I know you were really vocal about... It wasn't about... a fond out thing. It was, I'll just say it was good for both of us. It was, um, it was something that I, I wanted to go somewhere else. Yeah, you were ready. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I know that's super vague and all that other kind of stuff. But, you know, between, I mean, the suicide attempt being a big thing. I mean, this is the team I was on when I tried to kill myself last right. and um that's not something you forget just because you move a house or you you know you're still putting on the same uniform you're still seeing the same people you know nothing was the same for me after that article and everything else came out and I knew it was time for me to move on right so I was gonna ask you actually if you felt like you got cut because you were vocal about your depression oh uh, 
No. Okay. Yeah, it was, like I said, I know it's super vague, but just, it was time for me to move on. Yeah. No, that's cool. I, I'm happy to hear you say you don't believe it was because you were vocal about your depression because I know it's not. And yeah, that's awesome. That's great. Because I do know that I heard you speak one of the first uh, few times, I think, or maybe it was later, but you had mentioned it was tough to open up at first. uh, And part of that is the concern about the stigma. And I get that. I didn't share about my depression around my work for quite a long time. And so then once you do share I was curious if that had anything to do with it, so I'm glad to hear it didn't. And yeah, no, I'm I'm, I'm kind of at a point where, I mean, and I would say even when I did come out about it, like, I was never really afraid of a stigma. The way I see it is like, you know I mean, you know, I'm 6'5", black, with dreadlocks, hand tattoos, those kind of things. I think that my depression is the last thing that people would think about when they see me, you know, when we're right. talking about stigmas. I mean... You know, I just named about four or five stigmas I have to overcome on a daily basis before I even have a conversation with people. So, and not to mention, I don't care what anybody thinks about me. I'm not here to uh, to win a popular voter to be a politician. I'm here to change lives and love people. Yeah, that's phenomenal. You know, you bring up a good point with all these other pieces and living the life of a tall black man and all the different stereotypes being a big black dude, uh, tattoos yeah. and so forth. The and fact that you can't, you can't be doing anything else other than playing sports. Like people, I guarantee, I mean, there have been times I've been in public and just, I had to remind people like, you know, I have a college degree, Yeah, that kind of thing. And it's like, you could tell it didn't even cross their mind. Like, Oh shit, you went to college, you know? Oh yeah. Like, I, I know a, uh, a black man here in the twin cities who, uh, he told me he carries a business card so that, when he gets pulled over by a cop, because he he will be, no matter what, he has a business card with him that he gives with his driver's license so that the police immediately know he's a, a good citizen with a full-time job. It's a shame that he has to do that. Yeah, it, because it's absolutely. There are, other, there are other worse citizens out there that will never have to have a business card. And because of that, I don't carry a business card. Yeah. You know, I mean, at the same time, if any BS pops off, I can afford a lawyer. Like, you know, this this won't be the last time you see me. Right. But, um, right. yeah, I mean, that's, you know, I mean, I, I can't tell you how many times I've had to tell people that I'm not stupid because they keep trying to over. In fact, I was at my dentist's office last week and I got a, a tooth removed, a wisdom tooth removed. And I asked my dentist, um, great dentist. And I asked him, um, you know, what can I eat? What can I eat? That kind of thing. He said, you know, today for the rest of the day, um, until you start to feel better, just don't eat anything you can't cut with a fork. Now I feel like I have a two year old daughter and I think next year she'll be, um, she'll be able to understand that, Hey, if you can't cut it with a fork, you don't need to eat it today. Right. right. So the nurse behind him after he leaves begins to give me this litany of things I can and can't eat. And I'm have to stop her. I'm like, Hey, the doctor just told me, yeah, no, 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 I understand. And she continued to try to give me this list and I had to stop her again. I said, Hey, he just told me. And she started it again. I said, Hey, I'm not stupid. Like I understand that I'm black and have hand tattoos and all that, but I went to college. I have a degree, you know, like I've got a wife and kids at home. We're running, we were running a household and a family. Like I'm not stupid. I under, I can take direction the first time. Yeah. And you can, I mean, it's funny. We actually, um, I know we have to go back to this place. My wife has to go back to this place for a checkup. I'm not looking forward to that. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. You know, we, yeah. our school district has done, and our school in itself has done a lot of work around racial equity. So I've done a lot of my own self examination of being a white man and the privilege that comes with. And, um, see, the thing that really sucks is for me, it's not even necessarily. I look at it differently. Like I look at race as I look at it as what it is. According to my religious beliefs, we all originate, you know, from the same area and we have way more in common as human beings than we have different. And I feel like, you know, the, the things that I encounter, even, even at the dentist office, like I'm not mad at the lady, but at the same time I have to let her know, you know, like I'm not an idiot. And it just, it really sucks because I know that if aliens touch down tomorrow, the human race will come together so quick. Right. You know? I mean, the movies, I have all depicted it. You know, I mean, we know it. 
Yeah. I just don't understand why we can't do that without having to have a common enemy, regardless of religious beliefs, regardless of how you feel about certain things. I'm not, you know, everyone doesn't need to be best friends, but you know, there's nothing wrong with realizing we have more in common than we have yeah. um, not in common. Yeah. There's some uh, cool articles and, and pieces that describe and explain how it was, you know, the folks who created race when really there wasn't anything, but that was a way to oppress people. Mm-hmm. So they created the it, really. Yeah, exactly. It's really sad. Do it you, really uh, you know... But that's what I hope to change. That's one of the things I hope to change with not just, you know, these kind of interviews, but also with my music, you know. Right, right. So do you think being a black man, it's more difficult to talk about depression and stigma and it's less spoken about within the black community? I would say for the average black man, yes. For me, no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like I said before, you got to get to a point where, you know, if your happiness is really more important than anyone else around you's happiness, then your opinion should also be more important than anyone else's around you's opinion, if that right. makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, do you think, uh, so why do you think it's challenging for some many men in the black community? I know I went to a partial hospitalization program. I go to support groups. I never see a black man. It, well, in the partial hospitalization program, I was there three weeks. I saw one black man and he was there for two days and that was it. Yeah. I mean, I, that's a good question. I don't know. I, I don't, I don't know where the, I think part of it is I would look at it like, you know, AIDS in the 90s, people just don't know about it. And as opposed to want to learn about it, if they don't know about it, it's not normal. And it's, you know, therefore weird, that kind of thing. Right. And I mean, you know, there are tons of philosophers that echo nobody's normal. You know, like anyone who's listening to this show right now, I will do a social experiment and I am 100 percent, what's the word, confident in what your answer will be. Do you have things that are going on in your head, whether it's today, whether it was last week, whether, you know, do you have thoughts that you would be ashamed of if people knew, you know, like, do you have things that you would be uncomfortable with everyone, everyone knowing about you? And if the answer is yes, you're not normal. Right. Nobody's. Yeah, I would agree. Absolutely. I mean, what does it even mean to be normal? I think that's something else that was created by, I don't know who created it, but it's kind of the same thing. It's made to you know, separate people and, you know, promote isolation and so forth. And yeah, the re- you know, the reality of the situation is as human beings, we're made to love and be loved. You can't do that alone. Right. You mentioned it's easier for you to speak out than other black males, possibly. Do you think part of that is that you do have some privilege being a professional athlete that people look up to being um, that you do have some money? Do you think some of that may have something to do with you having more confidence in speaking out? or unrelated i've never fit in so to speak okay so i think for me i'm used to being on the outside i'm used to being the eyeball or you know weird or you know i mean i think differently and you know i challenge others around me to think differently and some people most people don't like that and you know if you don't like it don't come around that kind of thing And i'm not going to change who i am to appease people that might not even be around in my life a year from today right yep um so I, I do what I think, you know, I do what's important to me and I do what I feel like will benefit people. And me being quiet about this thing will not benefit anyone the same way Magic Johnson being quiet about his HIV. You know, if he had done that, it wouldn't have been. I'm, I guarantee you the strides that have been made in curing those diseases would not have been made or yeah. they, you know, they'd still be on the way to where they are now. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. I think so, you're absolutely right. Yeah. And the way I look at it is regardless of how I feel people are going to look at me, even if I did care about what people thought, I'll care more about the lives I can save. Yeah. It's very noble, very noble and very humble. So one distinction that I remember you really wanted to be able to talk to was the fact that outsiders who don't know you don't really know your story may attribute your depression to CTE. Mm -hmm. Chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Right. Mm -hmm. Which is caused, I believe, from all the head contact, right? Many concussions and so forth. And that Mm -hmm. it it does have some impacts on some people's brains, they say. 
and you right. are. I agree with that, but yeah. I'm not one of those people. Right, and you're um, adamant to say, you know what, I have a history here, and it goes well beyond playing football. So I'm not going to sit here and blame football for for my depression. Yeah, the reality of the situation is the first suicide attempt happened before I even knew what football was. Right. You know, my brain doesn't properly metabolize serotonin. On top of the fact I was raised in an environment uh, of the perfect storm of, you know, exacerbating and, you know, um, adding to my mental illnesses and conditions through traumatic experiences and different forms of abuse and neglect and so forth. So when you say the perfect storm, can you say more about that? I mean, I pretty much had two mentally unstable parents that didn't have anyone checking them, if that makes sense. On top of, you know, growing up in one of the families, um, you know, that kind of hated each other but stayed together because we had the same blood. Like, that's something I don't agree. You know, that's something, that's a thought process I have now. Like, just because we're blood relatives doesn't mean that, you know, we should have any more of a connection than even you and I, you know. I get it. You know, we have the same blood. That doesn't mean I owe you anything, right. you know, and you don't owe me anything. And if we don't get along, guess what? You ain't going to be around. And a lot of this happened when I had kids. I started to realize, man, if I'm always miserable, my parents call me. Maybe I should tell them to stop calling me. Maybe they shouldn't be around, you know, but I'm not going to sit here and, you know, get super tensed and stressed, especially in my own house, you know, just because you're my parents, because, I mean, for what it's worth, my parents didn't even, I don't even, they didn't even believe me. You know, the article came out and yeah, that's a whole nother thing. But, um, you know, I'm not going to sit around and, you know, try to convince them of anything the same way I don't sit around and try to convince anybody anything. I let the body work speak for itself. I keep moving. They didn't believe that you had depression or that you went, had suicide attempts? Both. Okay. Okay. And I mean, and I mean, them also being, you know, I, I would attribute 90% of it to them. Uh-huh. And I mean, I get it. No parent's perfect. I understand all that. And I know we don't have time to traverse all throughout my childhood, but I'll leave you with this. I was getting molested at three and four years old at a daycare. They were leaving me at, I did not feel comfortable enough to talk to them about it. Right, man. And then in the house, uh, verbal abuse from the parents too. Oh, for sure. I mean, you know, unless, unless there was an A on the report card or unless, you know, something amazing was happening. I was a big waste of money, space and time to them. So psychological, um, abuse, verbal yeah, abuse, I, physical abuse. For sure. Yeah. But I mean, that's where one of the, that's where the attempt came from. I just felt like I didn't deserve to live. And I was honestly in my mind doing my parents a favor. Right. Man. You know? God, that's rough. And, but you made it sound like, uh, they both had mental illness of their own that was unchecked on, uh, Oh, I guarantee you right now, my mom, wherever she is, is mentally unstable and not getting help. I yeah. put my life on it. Right. So they weren't reaching out for help. They didn't get help. And their illnesses were manifesting in various ways, coming out sideways and taking it out on you. Well, ironically, my dad is actually like a substance abuse and rehab counselor. Really? But I remember, but I remember telling him, and this was around the time I kicked him out of my life. I'm like, you must be the worst substance and rehab counselor in the world. You can reach your kids. How are you reaching these people that you don't even know? Right. You know, like, I mean, he taught and you know, how do I know how he acts at his job? Because I've been to, you know, parents bring your kids to work days and he talks to me the same way he talks to his patients. The problem was, you know, once again, that's a whole nother thing, but you know, I'm not, I don't, yeah, it sucked. But at the same time, I'm not sitting around dwelling in it because I've got kids now that I have, you know, that I want to make sure have it different than I did growing up. And, you know, focusing on all the bad doesn't always isn't always most conducive to producing good. That being said, I do understand that, you know, there I mean, there the reality of the situation is that you have to it was there was a show. There's a show I watched uh, called Atlanta. But there's a quote from the show like, you know, in order to make an omelet, you got to break some eggs. You know, great things come from great pain. Right. And that's. You know, so as much as it sucked, I also do acknowledge and tribute and appreciate that because it happened, I am where I am today. And yeah, absolutely. What? How old were you when you had your first suicide attempt? 
Nine. Nine, nine years ten. old. Wow. Yeah. And did your parents know about it? No. <laughs> I mean, you get you. I mean, you think about it. You can hide, get molested at daycare from them. You can hide anything. Right. Um, I took a bunch of. Uh, there was medicine. You know, obviously everyone has a medicine cabinet. I popped up one of the bottles, swallowed all the pills. I threw them up like half an hour later. Yeah. Um, but you know, cleaned it up, kept it to myself, you kept it moving. You didn't tell anybody. No, I mean, and it's funny because I've recently heard like different people's suicide stories and that kind of thing. And they talk about how scared they were and how there was a moment where it's like, man, what am I doing? You know, this isn't me or whatever, whatever. Every suicide attempt I've had, the only thing I felt was frustration because it didn't work. Wow. So you had, I think you said four suicide attempts. Mm -hmm. And the last one was just prior to our interview. I think Mm -hmm. our last interview. Yeah. And then if I remember right, it was your first time where you decided you were actually going to get some therapy and start some medication. Yeah. Uh-huh. And did that, I mean, did that all happen? Yeah, it all happened. Uh-huh. And I mean, I'm not going to lie and say it was easy. And I'm not going to lie and say I've got it all figured out because I don't. And obviously it's an ongoing process and it probably will be for the rest of my life. But at the same time, I knew I know what happens if I'm not. Mm-hmm. you know, actively working on this. And I've got kids now that didn't ask to be here. I've got a wife, you know, and I need to be here for them. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, um, I mean, even now, like there's certain things I'm still tweaking and that kind of thing actually. But, you know, I'm still, and my aunt said it the other day, you know, I'm going through, but I'm still moving forward. You yeah. know, I still have that momentum. Right. And, um, you know, I, I love them more than I hate myself. So, yeah. Yeah. I want to be here for them. I'm going to be here for them. That's awesome. I love to hear that, which is so different. That alone from our uh, last interview. Uh, I love to hear that. And uh, so you're going regularly to talk therapy. Yeah. I do psychotherapy once a week. Okay. And do you feel like that's helping? Yeah. I mean, it, I would look at psychotherapy, like massaging your brain. You know, mm-hmm. you get your first massage of your body and, you know, your first deep tissue massage. And you're like, man, this hurts. And uh, it seems like all the things that hurt the most are what the masseuse is really working on and trying to knead out and it's painful and all that other kind of stuff. Over time, you start getting a little bit more accustomed to it and you realize you just have to breathe, you know. And um, I think me, you know, working on things and that, nature it was kind of the same thing uh, i mean going to my i mean that first four eight weeks of therapy were, were, you know, it was it wasn't pretty and there's still days that i have right now that aren't pretty mm-hmm. um you know there's things that hurt and yeah it sucks to have to bring those things back up and deal with them and process them but you feel better afterward yeah. um and you know i have a saying that nothing worth doing is easy mm-hmm. uh, and therapy is not easy all the time yeah um uh, but you know, I, I I look at it from the vantage point of being on the other side of it, if that makes sense. For sure. Yeah. What it can do for you. Exactly. Yeah. And what you yeah, what you hope to become and that kind of thing. And, and I think part of that is, like you said, it's not easy, and the work and effort you put into it is what you get out. Right. You could be sitting in there and say, you know, I don't want to talk. I don't want to tell you anything. Yeah, this is I mean, and if anyone listening to this is doing that, this isn't a movie. It's not cool. There's no one else in there but you and a therapist. Like, don't waste your money going in there trying to be all, you know, I mean, you're there for a reason. The therapist is there for a reason. Like, just, you know, start, you know, I mean, like you said, that that whole sitting there arms crossed i'm a still i'm a steel wall well guess what the therapist is getting whatever you're paying them that hour whether you say anything or everything so you might as well get something out of it too exactly and i also always let people know if you don't click with the therapist if you don't like the therapist don't give up on therapy take the time and effort to shop around it sucks to have to go and share your story over and over but you want somebody that you can connect with and that you can trust so you that you do open up and share I agree 100%. The same way if you had a doctor that was crappy, you're not just going to stay with him and keep paying him the money. There are bad therapists. Just like there's bad whatever people get paid to do. There's bad people that do it too. Don't let, 
you know, don't let the rotten apple spoil the bunch, even though scientifically that's what it does. But you know what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm curious, one of the things, you know, after uh, our interview, I remember I sent you a few different emails because I was feeling really, really felt for you at the time and knew what you were going through. I mean, everybody's depression is different, but I, I had been in a deep, deep, dark place, too. And it was really a bummer for me to hear that. And I sent you a few different emails. And one of the things I had asked you about, and I'm curious if you ever um, checked into this at all, was because I knew you had some trauma in your past. I've read several articles and spoken to some people who have done EMDR therapy. <laughs> yeah, I've done EMDR therapy. And we're, I mean, I'm this. I mean, that's one of the things I'm talking about when I say it's not easy. Yeah, it's I, not. That is not easy, and I think that especially you need a really good therapist who knows how to do it. But so you're doing EMDR. Yep, from time to time. Fantastic, um, fantastic. But even even that could be perceived as overwhelming because it's like man you know how many traumatic events do i have how many times do we meet in a year 52 like you know yeah. i've got things to get over but you know i mean if you it's the same way a woodsman chops down a tree it could be the thickest tree ever save the trees but it could be the thickest tree ever is just for an analogy yeah. um and you know i mean you chop it down the same way you eat a huge sandwich the same way you take a trip one step at a time right you know, so EMDR, just so people know, is eye movement desensitization. And a lot of times uh, it, so it used to start with people, either a therapist holding their finger out for the eyes to be moving or looking at a light that's moving to get your eyes to move. And I know a lot of EMDR therapists now use things that tap into different senses. So I know one guy I met held a couple of egg shaped. Uh, pieces. That's what I used. Yeah. And they kind of vibrated. Mm -hmm. and, or had a pulse to them so that the and the idea is that they're tapping into your senses while they're walking you through some of your past traumas and i'm not sure uh about your situation maybe you could share a little more but i know the people i met i met talked to some men and some women who had emdr and they said it was tough and there were tears and they said if they felt like a whole different person walking out of there and uh and the the way they related to everybody on a regular daily basis had changed according mm. to them. Um, have you noticed some dramatic changes through your EMDR therapy? I don't know about dramatic changes. I think the thing that sticks out to me right now is just going through the process. I mean, there was a death that happened in 2013 without this death. There's no guitar. Like I'm, I guarantee you, I'm not picking up the guitar cause no one's recommending that I play guitar. But anyway, there's a death that happened in, I think it was 2013 or 2014. I think it was 2013. Um, it was 2013 because I had the conversation with Jeff Fisher in early 2014 because the season went over in January. Um, but, you know, the, the man that died, his name was Charleston Fobbs. Um, without Charleston Fobbs, I'm not playing football. I'm not. I mean, none of this is happening. And, I mean, even right now as we're talking about it, it sucks because, you know, I mean, it still hurts just as bad as it did the day it happened. Mm. And, you know, I mean, I, you know, one day I'm going to tell my kids about this man and I'll never know who I'm talking about, you know, that kind of thing. And that right. hurts, you know. Right. Um, he died uh, in a car accident. And, like, I want to say this was like the week that I was, you know, uh, this was, this was going to, this was the week leading up to my first start in the NFL at right tackle. He died in a car accident, I think, that Wednesday or Thursday. That Sunday, I got a call in the morning from, or a text message in the morning from one of my dad's preacher friends that said that God killed him because I don't call my parents enough. Holy shit. And, um, yeah. I mean, from a faith standpoint, from a, I mean, that just kind of, you know, I mean, you can imagine. It's like if you get shot and someone comes by and kicks you in the nuts hard. Right, you know? right, right. But I, I remember being at his funeral, and I remember for the longest time, like before MDR, MDR, I would not be able to have this conversation without crying. Right. I remember, so we did the MDR the first, and we're still working through that, but uh, the first thing we did was kind of relive me walking into the funeral, walking up into that, walking up to the casket, seeing the dead body for the first time. And um, through the EMDR, I kind of realized 
you know, why I felt so alone ever since is because that is the one person in my life that has stood up for me at any point in time in my life. I mean, besides my agent, but I'm paying my agent to stand up. But you know <laughs> right, what I'm saying? Like, right, right. You know, I mean, he, he didn't, there was no ulterior motives. He just really wanted to help me get out of the city and become, you know, I mean, he always told me that I could be, you know, one of the best to ever do it in terms of football. And now he's not here to see me do it. But, you know, and that, you know, that's how I got down to my feeling of like loneliness. Like this is the one person um, in my life that's a male that I felt like really cared about me yeah, for who I was that really believed in me. You know, I didn't start playing football until I was 16 or 15, 15, 16. I started late. 15 or 16 and then yeah. college ball and then the NFL. And without him, none of it's possible. Because even when I went to college, I was just going to college to get a degree. I never thought I could go to the NFL. Right. You know, he'd always be on the phone. I remember he called me my junior year asking me if I wanted to declare for the draft or not. I'm like, declare for the draft? <laughs> I'm still trying to figure this game out, you know. That is but, funny. Um, was yeah. he a dude your age, older guy? And how did you know him? Was he a friend of the family? He was a high school coach. Okay. Um, he coached that cast, the high school I went to. Right. Uh, and I mean, people, you know, people, even dudes on the football team, it was, he was the defensive coordinator. Everybody, back when I was going to CAS, uh, the only people that we sent to school, like real schools, play defense, play for Coach Pops. Right. Um, and so I wanted to play defense so I could go to school, get out of my parents' house, start making some money, that kind of thing. And, um, I don't know. I remember him having a conversation with my dad one day during one of our communities, uh, not community service, but our fundraising things. We sold water downtown Detroit to fund us being able to go to football camp. He talked to my dad for what seemed like forever. And I remember him, he pulled out one of those Athlon sports books, I think it was. And it had like, you know, the college rankings and that kind of thing. And he's flipping through the book. I don't know much about colleges at the time, but you know, certain schools, USC, Ohio State, right. University of Michigan. I didn't even know about LSU back then, Florida State, Miami. And he's just flipping through the book. And he's like, I think I know. He said, I know that your son is good enough to go to any of these schools and be a dominant player. Any of these schools. I know that he's good enough to go to the NFL and be a dominant player. I'm focused on college right now, just getting him to college. If you let me work with this boy, I can get him, you know, he can, I can make it so that he'll be able to choose between any of these schools in this magazine. And I'll be damned if two years later I wasn't a parade all American and you know, that's incredible. Yeah. He's obviously, obviously, I mean, you were in high school at the time, right? He obviously saw something in you and knew, I mean, now you're, what year is this in the NFL for you now? Nine. Nine years NFL, which is much longer than the average, isn't it? Yeah, that's one thing he always instilled in me. Like, if you have the ability to dominate, average is not going to cut it. And that's with anything in life. He was on me just as hard about my grade. I mean, he was one of the reasons I didn't really do anything else but, like, sports and school because I knew if I picked up something else, he'd be on me about that. Like, if I joined the poetry club... Hey, the slam poem didn't really sound as good as it could have. Let's try that again. You know, that kind right. of Right. Man, um, what a man. What a what a role model. And yeah. uh, just to I mean, he was my dad. Like yeah. I you know. Right. And just to have somebody who really, really believed in you, right? That's that's really cool. Yeah. And I and I'm really sorry for the loss because it's clear how uh, tight you were with him. Oh, thanks, man. Yeah. I mean I'm sure that's something I'll probably be dealing with for the rest of my life, but it is easier today than it was this time last year for what that's worth. Right. What about, uh, so that was kind of a more recent trauma that you worked through with EMDR. Did you ever talk about any of the young trauma you went through? <laughs> um, yeah, I've talked about it to my therapist and I'm right. sure, like I'm sure we'll be doing EMDR on that too. Yeah. I'm not excited about that. But so you haven't yet though? Not yet. Not on that. No. Well, imagine, uh, like you said, you're able to talk about uh, your high school coach now and the accident, the funeral, and get through well, it. That, to me, with all, with everything that's happened in my life, I would still consider that the most traumatic thing. Right. Like the only thing that could have been more traumatic than that is if the world exploded. Right, right. 
So and, and you're talking about it now. So imagine what what'll happen when you talk about your early traumas. Oh, we can, I mean, we can talk about it. Like, yeah, that like I said, that was the hardest thing. That's what I wanted to do first because yeah. you know, I, I like to start with the hardest and work backwards because yeah. it's like, well, it's not going to get any harder than this. Yeah, I think it's awesome though, and I'm I'm excited that you're willing to jump into that stuff with the EMDR. I have heard amazing stuff. It sounds like it's doing some good stuff for you as well. For sure. What? Do, so, how many kids do you have now? Two. Two kids. One two-year-old and one seven-month-old. All right. And they are both so cute. Looks like we grabbed them from the cabbage patch and brought them to the house. <laughs> that is awesome. And uh, and now you're in the off-season, right? Yes. What do you do in the off-season to keep busy then? I, want, I mean, the same thing I'm doing. The same things I do during the season. Yoga, meditate, journal, read, you know, go to church, study the Bible, uh, community service, there, and my music. You got to have at least like, what, eight, ten hours out of the day that you did not have during the season, though, right? No, because I just replace it with other stuff, if yeah. that makes sense. You know, like, yeah. obviously music comes to the forefront now and football. You know, I'm still exercising and doing those kind of things and working out at the facility. But at the same time, it's not like I can go play a game tomorrow. Right. Um, so, yeah, I, I just, you know all the focuses and all the goals are the same. It's just, you know, obviously there's less volume of football from day to day and there's a more, more of a musical volume now, you know, um, you know, I use this time to also reconnect with friends that I haven't had the opportunity to talk to as much during the season. I also use this time to reevaluate different relationships that just don't seem to be, um, conducive to, you know, my life moving in a positive direction, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, it sounds yeah, to I mean, me like a lot of it is about self care, about taking care of yourself. For sure. Yeah. yeah. Self care, music, football, and family. Yeah. Awesome. You know. And you, uh, you play the guitar and you write your own songs, don't you? Yep. And um, actually, since the last time we talked, I also have taken singing lessons and uh, found that I have a four octave vocal range. So sweet. I have. Yeah. So I've been. Um, you know, doing that too. My wife always told me I'm a really big Hendrix fan, and I'm like Jimi Hendrix. You know, because she would she say, you know, hey babe, I know you have the ability to sing. Maybe we should look into getting you some voice lessons. And I'm like, well, Jimi Hendrix didn't sing. She's like, yeah, and your name ain't Jimi Hendrix. Like, <laughs> yeah, you know, she's, she's got like, a point. <laughs> yeah, like she's like, you know, that's that's Jimmy's story. That's not your story. You right, know? right. So yeah, and I'm. I mean, it's funny we still talk about it. I thank her to this day that she uh, coaxed me into doing those things because it's been great. Yeah. Well, I know you spoke in the last interview, too. It sounds like your wife um, is an incredible person who supports you in many ways. Yeah, she's um, she's the best thing that ever happened to me. Yeah, that's amazing. So um, self-care for the off-season, are you in the gym working out like every day, or what's that regimen like? I work out four days a week. Three of them are uh, full body exercises at the facility, you know, with movement and stuff mixed in. And then the other one is yoga. You know, like I said, I do a bunch of uh, stretching and meditation on a daily basis, sometimes twice a day. Uh-huh. But uh, the big the big bulk of my time now is actually consumed by music. Those 10 hours are now consumed by music. Right. You That's... know, write, uh, writing songs. We're actually going to the iHeartRadio Music Awards tomorrow in uh, Los Angeles, but I just recorded my second. I just finished recording my second album uh, two weeks ago. Thank you. And I got an EP that's coming out in April. So uh, we're in the process of pubbing that and, you know, moving forward with that. But that's, you know, I love music as much as I love football. And there's not a second of a day that goes by that I don't think about football. And the same thing with music, you know. Yeah. What do you Um, tend to write music about? Whatever. (laughs) <laughs> do you do you write about uh, depression? Do you write about your family, kids? There's a song called Journey to Nowhere. Here, let me see. I'll, I'll just pick out a, a song that's on the uh, EP and go through it. Let me, I'm pulling up the lyrics. Sweet. There's a song called Danielle, because that'll be the single that's coming out with this EP. We actually filmed the video for this next week, Monday. Sweet. Um, so, My Heart Bleeds for You, Rivers of Love Flow. You're also special, darling, just in case you didn't know. Obviously, that's about my wife. Yeah. People try to divide us, but I don't entertain. After all these years, you've stayed the same. That's about my guitar. 
Okay. Um, but you know, Danielle, I hate to see you cry. We can do this if we try. I guess most of my songs, if you look at them, even this song, you know, I tell you all my secrets, all my hopes and dreams. At times I thought I found gold, but it wasn't what it seemed. Uh, think about the future, what I want for us for my next heartbeat until I turn to dust. Now, it's really easy to think, oh, that's a love song about his wife, but it's much more than that. Right. It could be a love song to my kids. It could be, you know, a, a, a ballad to my music. It could be me singing to my actual life. I've written some songs where it sounds like I'm singing a love song to a woman and it's actually a song to me about myself. There's been songs that sound like, you know, like let me love you type songs that actually are more talking about like God and the average human, that kind of thing. So, I mean, my music is artistic to say the least, but the beautiful thing about it is that I'll be able to, you know, because it's so different, but at the same time, so familiar there's no one that's doing it right now. Right. And, um, you know, I, I, I describe my music as something that you've never heard, but I've always wanted to hear. Yeah. Awesome. So if listeners want to get to your music, what's the easiest way for them to find it? JosephBarksdale.com. I mean, you get on Spotify, iTunes, search my name. It'll come up <laughs> like right. on Google or anything. Just search Joe Barksdale. Um, right. Like I said, right now, the Butterflies, Rainbows, and Moonbeams album is out. That was my first album. It was actually dropped around the time that we had our interview last, uh, our last interview. Okay. Um, and so, yeah. uh, and you do have your own website, thejoebarksdale.com? Just josephbarksdale.com. Josephbarksdale.com, got it. Yeah, I feel like there's a, I think my wife said it was like a real estate person or something that owns joebarksdale.com, the domain name. Oh, and really? I don't feel like, yeah, I don't feel like getting into an eBay battle over <laughs> yeah, yeah. a domain name. Yeah, so, probably not worth it. Not at all. That's funny. All right, man, you sound, I got to tell you, you sound so much better. And I Oh, and am... apparently there's a Barksdale Dentistry, too, if you type in jbarksdale.com. <laughs> nice, nice. And I think it's in Louisiana, 225 area code. Okay, sorry. That sorry. is funny. <laughs> Uh, yeah, you just, you sound so much better and I'm so happy to hear you and, and be able to engage in a conversation with you. Uh, I'm so happy for you. I'm really glad that you're diving into the therapy and, uh, doing the work. And like you said, it takes effort, right? You are, and you are working at it and thus you're getting so much better. And I, I know you mentioned, uh, I think before we were on the air, maybe that you had listened to the last interview and realized like, wow. That was pretty, pretty low. And I hope that you'll uh, listen to this one too and, and compare the two because whew. I hate hearing my talking voice, but I will. You is, <laughs> you're like a totally different person. And uh, it's weird, but well, I'm actually the same person. You, it's funny. You sound like a different person. And I think you've come so far. And uh, I know that you're continuing the therapy and everything else. And you're, like I said before, too, such a healthy dude doing the yoga, the working out. I'm sure you watch what you eat. You're going to you are going to work past this and it's going to it's going to be more work, I'm sure. But you are putting in the work and that's what counts. Yeah, hey, I don't know if I ever work past it. My, like I said before, my brain doesn't properly metabolize serotonin. This was something I was born with. Right. So I look at it like uh, diabetes. Like it's going to be, I mean, I know some people, okay, diabetes isn't a good example because some people get out of diabetes, but it's permanent diabetes. Yeah. You know, and it's, that's, that has been the hardest thing that I've had to come to terms with that I will probably be on medication for the rest of my life. You know, I'll probably have to be, not have to be, you know, I mean, there are certain things that I will have to do the same way that certain things that people with diabetes or any kind of illness would have to do. Yeah. And, um, I think for the longest time I looked at it as a handicap. But um, now I look at it as an inspirational story to tell others. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I do think, you know, you're working through one piece of trauma at a time. I, I know what you're saying. I hear you about the brain and chemical imbalance and so forth. I think working through the trauma like you're doing, though, too, is going to help you immensely. And, yeah, if nothing else, it makes, it, it makes me... I don't know. It makes people more comfortable. I don't know how to explain it. It's, I, I would look at the therapy like, yes, it helps me, but I know for a fact it helps the people around me more than it helps me, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So before we wrap up here, any, uh, any words of advice or 
suggestions for people who may be listening who are in a deep, dark place themselves right now? I got words of advice for the people who are in the dark place and the people who know these people that are in the dark place. I will start with the people who know these people. Don't think yourself out of saving a life. You know, too many times you get on social media or you see these posts. Oh, I just wish I had said something. If only I say something. Yeah. You know, no one's, you know, there's no one putting a gun to your head saying don't say anything. And there's no courage without fear. I understand people are afraid of whatever you might be afraid of. But if you love someone, if you care about them, if you don't want to see them kill themselves, say something, you know, and it's not all, it doesn't have to be because I've had so many friends that it meant well that just, you know, they don't get it. Like they, they don't get it. I've got a really good friend right now that I was teammates with. He's actually the godfather of my kid and he doesn't get it. And there've been times that he's tried to talk to me, you know, when I've been in a dark space or, you know, whatever. And he talks about it like it's just something you can just shake off and move on from. And I understand it's not the case, right? you know, but I do appreciate and, you know, um, you know, I'm so grateful that he does care enough to say something. Yeah. You know, I think for people who are maybe worried about what to say, less is more. I mean, sometimes you let the conversation dictate you know, where you take it. But more than anything, people just need to know that you care about them. Absolutely. Sometimes it's just being there for them. Exactly. Yeah. And, that, and that's it. Yeah. And I know it doesn't, to some people, it's like, oh, I don't feel like I'm really doing anything. Well, I don't feel like I'm really changing anyone's life when I serve the homeless, you know, right. or anything like that. But, you know, I still do it, yeah. you know. Um, and I know that it's making some kind of difference. Yeah. Um, That's great advice. Uh, I I say the same thing, and I I always add, like, you don't have to be a therapist to talk to somebody and to check in with them. I mean, let's be honest. My wife's not a therapist, but um, if it weren't for her, I wouldn't be here right now. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, she's about as inexperienced of a therapist as you can get. You know, hated philosophy classes. (laughs) Right, right. You know, numbers and that kind of thing. Yeah. But, um, and as far as the people who do need someone to talk to. Um, I know it's hard to reach out. Uh, shoot, shoot me an email. My email is jbdale72 at gmail.com. That being said, I know I don't have all the answers, but I do understand. And if nothing else, I can point you in the right direction. Yeah, I'm not a therapist, you know, but, um, but you've been there. I've been there and I'm, you know, there's no judgment. Um, you know, I'm not going to, you know, leak your stories to the media or use them to further an agenda or anything like that. I just, you know, for the same reason I came out about in the first place, I know it sucks and I just want to help people. Yeah. Awesome. Some great pieces of advice for both sides, people who want to support somebody and uh, for those who are in a deep, dark place. Well, Joe, uh, thank you very much. I I was so excited that you reached out and said, hey, let's do this again. I really appreciate your time. I really uh, value and appreciate what you're doing talking out about your depression and sharing your story. And I know, I guarantee you're changing lives. Yeah. More life changes to come, too, because... The music's coming down the pipe, and I'm going to be world famous before you know it. <laughs> hey, hey, sounds good to me. Uh, I'll get you back on the show uh, for one of your big releases. Cool. <laughs> when I'm big and famous, too, and have more listeners. Hey. <laughs> All right, well, Joe, thanks again, and uh, make sure you stay healthy. Thanks, man. Same to you. Thank you for listening to The Depression Files. If you are currently suffering from depression and are experiencing thoughts of suicide, please reach out for help. In the United States, you can text 741-741 to connect with a trained crisis counselor, or you can go to suicide.org for a list of international suicide hotlines. If you enjoyed the show, please hit the like button. In addition, please leave a rating and a review on iTunes. Thank you again for listening to The Depression Files.